0: music mm-hmm.
1: Song is Sooner or Later by Eliza Gilkinson. It's your introduction to Activist Radio. We have some history we don't think you learn in high school. We have several news stories you haven't seen in the New York Times, and we have music to help you join the resistance. Activist Radio compete Thursdays 8 to 9 a.m. on KBOO. they at 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. Thursdays 11 to 12 noon on WRFA, that's 107.9 FM in Jamestown, New York. Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on W V Care, 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Thursdays 7 to 8 p.m. on WBDY and 99.5 FM at the Bundy in Binghamton, New York. Sundays 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. on WESU and they're at 88.1 FM at the Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Sundays 4.05 p.m. from WIOF and they're at 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network. Find them at prn.live. And finally, Mondays, 11 to 12 noon on WCAA. And there at 107.3 FM in Albany, New York. Past programs are available as a podcast or anytime on the web. Just go to classwars.org. Our guest today is going to be Ann Larson. She's an anti-poverty activist. She's a contributor to the anthology Going for Broke. Living on the edge in the world's richest country. We talk about, well, how the poorly paid in this country get by in a country that's designed for the billionaire class. Which bring, brings me the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of its station, board of directors, constituents, just the views of me, Fred, and I'm bringing you up to date on America's hidden class wars. Hey, he
0: One day our whispers
2: will be louder than your screams One day our whispers will be louder than your screams One day our whispers will be louder than your screams The people's day will come Helmut Goldman sang this song for you Big Bill Haywood and Mother Jones too go and that took care lives We can One day our whispers
1: will be louder than Well, the People's Day, that's Otis Gibbs It's also your introduction to the first part of Activist Radio We really look at this history you didn't learn in high school It's a part of Activist Radio We remember the history of social struggle uh, the important parts are often left out of our corporate media which never wants us to understand how social movements essentially change society. Well, We're going to go in history now to February 22, 1917. Tsar Nicholas II left for the front during World War I. His absence meant that the dissatisfaction in the Russian heartland was left to fester and grow. Nicholas II had dissolved the elected Duma before it could assume power, and the celebration of International Women's Day had turned into a protest against the government's food rationing during the war. Tens of thousands of workers flooded the streets of Petrograd, now St. Petersburg, demanding an end to the war and the overthrow of the Russian monarchy. Soon the uprising became dangerous to the ruling class. The revolutionaries sacked government buildings, including the headquarters of the secret police. They also seized the arsenal, released all political prisoners, and distributed 40,000 seized rifles to the striking workers. Even the Cossack units, the elite guardians of the Tsar, refused to shoot into the crowds. Nicholas was arrested at a train station trying to get to Petrograd, and the palace guards protecting his family left their posts. It was not long before Nicholas and his entire family were secretly murdered and buried. The horror of this workers' rebellion would affect much of the world for the next hundred years. Like the French Revolution that preceded it, all the way back in 1789, the Russian uprising turned society upside down. The rich elite were rounded up and often murdered, while the poor and working class assumed all the country's decision-making. Soon the neighboring countries sent armies to restore the previous class system. Why would they do that, you might ask? But well, revolution is dangerous to a country with an elite class of millionaires and a vast number of working poor. The following countries sent the most soldiers, that was England, uh, France, and especially the United States. They organized coups to overthrow the new Bolshevik regime. They made alliances with the White Army, and that was the main opponent to the New Red Army. President Woodrow Wilson sent in 13,000 U.S. troops. A number of Eastern European countries sent troops as well. The White Army, however, often mutinied and turned against these foreign troops. And by 1920, the invaders were mostly defeated. But the damage between the Soviets and the West had already been done. The Cold War that resulted would would pause during World War II but come back with a vengeance after Germany was defeated. The West's decision to attack the Soviet Revolution back in 1918 would be the fatal mistake that eventually causes a possible nuclear holocaust. But why did the Western powers try to defeat the Russian Revolution? There were investment assets to be protected, of course, so was the banks But I think the major reason is that the West, with its system of oppressing workers to feed the very rich, did not like the Soviet emphasis on worker rights and economic justice. That's certainly why the U.S. has embargoed Cuba, and more recently Venezuela and Nicaragua. The threat of a just society run by those who produce the goods and services is an anathema to the filthy rich. The class that makes all the decisions about our own society. In truth, the richest class makes terrible decisions about global warming, nuclear armaments, and our endless wars in the third world. Everything is done for someone's profit margin, and nothing is done to make our planet livable or even sustainable, and our own American empire is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Of course, these were Martin Luther King's uh, words in his Riverside Church speech. Perhaps the the West wouldn't be aiding and abetting the genocide of the Palestinian people if we too had our own revolution, one that left decision-making up to the working class. If foreign policy were left to the citizens of this country, the murder of 12,000 Palestinian children would have ended all U.S. aid to Israel. Free, free Palestine. Free, free the American people. We're gonna to go to a song now. This is David Rovix. The song is Wounded Child.
3: For six weeks now, the bombing has continued. Every few minutes another child dies Crushed without warning beneath the rubble of their homes And that's where her body lies And those who are pulled out from the carnage And who may just live to see another day May first meet a doctor with a marker Who will inscribe five letters down to say Writing on the bodies of survivors An acronym for anyone to see WCNSF Wounded Child with no surviving family entire families missing from the register since they all lived and slept in the same tower block that generations shared now it's just a street with a name that last month had a row of buildings that used to be alive with children playing now a doctor scrawls on an armless boy as his parents still beneath the rubble decaying writing on the bodies of survivors and act Acronym for anyone to see WC NSF Wounded child With no surviving family See the lifeless legs dangling at an angle That tell you exactly how they died One moment they were laying on a mattress The next one the building opened wide As a one-ton missile Made in California Was dropped upon it and this is how It became a grave for a whole extended family which is what it is now. As they're writing on the bodies of survivors, an acronym for anyone to see: Double SF wounded child with no surviving family. The U S needs. Guards the Mediterranean To make sure nobody intervenes With the bunker busters Smashing down the buildings Each passing hour Another horrifying scene Of living children Crying for their mothers As they limp past Mountains of the dead To the hospital that's also being bombed To the school that's now a sea of red As they're writing on the bodies of survivors An acronym for anyone to see WCNSF Wounded Child With no surviving family Wounded child With no surviving family Wounded child With no surviving family
2: They lied, they lied They took us for a ride out. The truth wins out. Everybody knows they lie. I ain't telling you nothing. You don't already know, but the government's been
1: lying to you. Well, that, of course, is They, they lied, lied, lied by Jay Mankita, leading to the next part of Activist Radio at its own website, fantasylandmedia.org, fantasylandmedia.org, because we would like to point out uh, the defects the and the misrepresentation they uh, they uh, that the corporate media has does especially when it comes to Israel and Israel's attack on Gaza for example so I think this is an in-depth look at the failings of our corporate controlled media where unfortunately all the news is made by the people in charge the Pentagon the corporations and your very
2: won't remember you when you wake up in the morning by the dawn's early light if it reminds you of
1: The first story is from the New York Times. Quote, a tunnel offers clues to how Hamas uses Gaza's hospitals, unquote. But that's the New York Times headline. It would seem that Hamas was using tunnels under hospitals in the articles about just how they did it. What evidence is there, you might ask? Quote, classified Israeli intelligence documents obtained in reviewed by the Times, indicate that the tunnel is at least 700 feet long." Later, the New York Times is not so sure. The Israeli military, however, has struggled to prove that Hamas maintained a command and control center under the facility. Critics of the Israeli military say the evidence does not support its early claims. The article goes on to present more supposed evidence. The Israeli military showed a video on November 5th of what it said was entrance to a tunnel that was being used for terror infrastructures on the hospital's grounds. But the video appears to show something else, a water storage area built in 2016 when the hospital was constructed according to the engineering plans and images from the hospital's construction reviewed by the New York Times. So what evidence do we really have in this story besides Israeli secret documents, some of them reviewed by the New York Times and American officials? Is an army committing genocide really to be trusted? Instead of, quote, a tunnel offers clues, unquote, the article's title should read, Israeli intelligence claims tunnels under hospitals were used by Hamas. It's a good example of news being twisted to support Israel. The title on the front page is obviously misleading, but one has to read the whole article to recognize the scam. All right, our second story is from Counterpunch. Let's examine how donor nations responded to a sister UN organization, the Peacekeeping Force, when staff faced accusation of misconduct. In 2021, the UN Secretary General concluded that it was credible that 450 members of the Peacekeeping Force in Gabon were guilty of child rape sexual exploitation. Unlike UNRWA, however, the U.S. and other donors did not suspend funding to the U.N. agency when reports of sexual abuse emerged. More importantly, they continued to fund even after the allegations were verified. Yet immediately after Israel raised yet-to-be-verified allegations against a very few of UNRWA's staff, Canada and other donors Preempted any investigation and froze funding to an organization that currently provides vital humanitarian assistance to a population enduring siege and relentless bombing. The disparity in the two UN cases is a stark illustration of evident Western bias and how it's driven by the victim victimizer's racial characteristics rather than a commitment to genuine fairness. What Western media would dare expose the racist response of much of the white Christian world? Children are dying of starvation in Gaza, but they're only Muslim, so let's not worry about it too much. Our third story is from Common Dreams. Israeli Defense Forces officers brought Israeli citizens into detention centers and allowed them to watch and film Palestinian prisoners being tortured according to survivor testimonies published this week by the Geneva-based Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor. Prisoners held at detention centers in Zikim on the northern border of the Gaza Strip and at a site in southern Israel affiliated with Nakhdi Prison told Euro-Med Monitor that Israeli soldiers had had purposely presented them before Israeli citizens falsely claiming that they were fighters affiliated with the Palestinian armed factions and that they had taken part in the October 7th attack on Israeli towns, the group said. The former detainees said groups of 10 to 20 Israeli citizens were brought in, allowed to record torture sessions in which men were stripped nearly naked, were beaten with metal batons, electrocuted, and had hot water poured over their heads. The ex-prisoners said that some of the Israelis laughed while filming their torture. Well, needless to say, this story was not picked up by any U.S. media. It's just too much for our citizens to see. After all, stories like this indicate that the U.S. is aiding and abetting a genocide. All right, we have uh, just time to read a class wars point of view. So let's jump into that. Quote, we often think of our elected officials as ordinary people caught up in the spirit of public service. They, they certainly tried to be like the rest of us, families, favorite teams to cheer for. It's true they are often a bit more patriotic than the average citizen, but not so carried away however as to ever fight America's endless wars in the third world. But when the Senate voted today for more aid to Israel, my confidence in our elected leaders faltered. We can see it on every computer screen, the genocide of two million at the hands of a rabid and a racist Israeli army. Netanyahu's Israel behaves like the Third Reich, and our elected leaders behave like this is what normal people do. But normal people want a ceasefire, not another shipment of bombs and missiles to Israel. Normal people are horrified at the prospect of tens of thousands of children being starved to death. Not our political leaders, however. Now that Israel has 2 million Palestinian civilians hopelessly crowded into southern Gaza, the final solution can begin. And to that rarefied world of the U.S. Senate, that's just fine. The startlingly a morality of our ruling class, however, is a teaching moment. Our government is not a democracy, and its two-party system is nothing more than a sham. The system is so outrageously monstrous that we have to take notice. Our late American empire is a killing machine, and genocide is just another acceptable tactic. This is Jim Page again. And the song itself is Collateral Damage. Let's listen to that.
2: You loved your sweet country for all of your life Like your mother and father before you And the land runs deep, so deep in your blood Your flesh and your bone and your sinews Descendants and ancestors deep as it goes A relative circle as far as your eye It can all be undone in the flash of an instant Mechanical thunder that bruises the sky Bruises the sky Goodbye to my relatives all of my life Never again will I see You won't have a name when they fly the big airplanes Collateral damage is all you will be, all you will be. From a faraway place where the language is strange, they come with their angry machines. And the clouds rain a metal that hurts when it falls. And it shatters the ground, making everything scream And the children run crippled, the old people hide The babies are caught in the rubble debris But the strangers don't know you, you are only a number underreported on Color TV, Color TV Goodbye to my relatives all of my life Never again will I see You won't have a name when you hear the big airplanes Collateral damage is all you will be All you will be A mother is more than a number to a baby who now has to grow up on its own And a grandfather blinded and crippled at his age is more than just a statistical drone All of these people are human, and humans are more than a footnote This cynical language of killing is killing us Cut like a bone in humanity's throat, humanity's throat. Goodbye to my relatives all of my life. Never again will I see you. You won't have a name and they fly the big airplanes. Collateral damage is all you will be, all you will be. So if you see a ghost in the lonely wind blowing Like shrapnel, the sound of the rain And it's speaking a language you don't understand But you know what it means just the same There's no time for innocence, all of that's over Now don't say that you didn't know When they come to collect for the damages is over The collateral may be your own, may be your own Goodbye to my relatives all of my life Never again will I see You won't have a name when they fly the big airplanes Collateral damage is all you will be, all you will be
1: All right, we're going to go right to our guest, Ann Larson. She's an anti-poverty activist, contributor to the anthology called Going for Broke, Living on the Edge in the World's Richest Country. So let's go to that. All right, Ann Larson, thank you so much for being on Activist Radio today.
4: Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Uh, you talk and and you've done some writing on a broken system uh, that working people are f- essentially forced to to work in, do most people know the system is broken, or do you find people try to defend the system uh Your view of it is uh there's many things wrong, so many things wrong that it is broken essentially you know you uh have the experience working in the grocery store uh talking to other workers. Do they think the system is broken in some way? And maybe we should go into uh, how the system is broken.
4: Sure. Um, yeah. So let me just start by saying, um, from 2020 and uh, part of 2021, I worked in a supermarket. Uh, obviously, so this was during during the height of the pandemic. Um, I had previously, you know, been um, what you might call, you know, a white collar professional. Um, and so I had, uh, through various reasons, um, found myself unemployed and had to find work. And the pandemic hit, and it was really hard to find employment. Um, so I took a job at the supermarket. Um, and I w- described this experience in uh, a in an article that I wrote for an anthology called Going for Broke, which I know we'll talk about. Um, but in the article, I describe um, an incident that I'll tell you about and that will help me answer, um, you know, your question. One day in the store, I got to work about mid-morning and I was told about an incident that occurred earlier that day where a man had dropped his pants on the floor of the supermarket.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And this incident had created, obviously, uh, a, a lot of conversation and some tensions among the staff. Um, Mm -hmm. The store had a bathroom that was accessible with a code that you could only get by buying something. And so what um, a lot of unhoused or – we all assumed the man who had done this was unhoused, but he could have just been somebody who didn't have enough money to buy anything, right? Um, Waited Mm. outside – well, what people would often do is wait outside the door for someone to exit the bathroom so they could grab the door and go Sure. And uh, what we assumed happened is that no one opened the door in time, and so he um, dropped his pants and did what he had to do, right? And yeah. this incident, by the time I got there, you know, it was it was over, but people were still talking about it, and it it created, you know, kind of a split in the store where a lot of staffers said we were sympathetic to the man's situation and said, you know, he didn't have anywhere else to go. It was winter. Um, You know, and I kind of fell into this group. I sort of, you know, well, you know, people have to go to the bathroom somewhere, right? There was another group that was really made quite angry and frustrated um, by this, by what the man had done. And they really regarded this as a a kind of affront, right? As something he had done to offend or to Mm. annoy us. So there was this split that emerged. And in fact, one of my colleagues kind of reprimanded me for defending the the man. And and my Mm. colleague said... You know, Jane had to clean it up. Meaning, um, while you're sitting here, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of on your high horse defending this behavior, one of your colleagues had to get a broom and a mop and clean up this mess. Right. Mm. And so
1: there there is arguments within the, the working force about, well, homelessness. Uh you I think you've written that, that your star was pretty close to a homeless uh whether it was a shelter or just sort of an encampment. So you've got a lot of homeless people coming in, probably pretty hungry and with no money. So, you know, having homeless people come in is sort of another sign that the system is broken, isn't it? I mean, to have that many homeless people and people who are hungry and, uh, you know, can't get even into a shelter in the winter because there's only a set number of beds. Exactly. So maybe that it makes the um the system exposes the system even more, you know, than uh just getting low pay. Is this all about low pay, do you think? Is that is that you know, if you if you the workers in uh supermarkets were paid twice as much, do you think the system would be that broken or doesn't isn't doesn't it have anything to do with how much people get paid?
4: It's certainly partly about pay. Uh, Retail, the supermarket industry, retail food, the service industry, broadly speaking, is very, very low paid. Um, I mean, all Mm -hmm. workers have, I'm sure as you know, all workers have lost ground over the last few decades. We've had pay stagnation. We've had wage stagnation since the 70s. But in the retail industry, it's actually the losses are much more staggering and really quite unsettling, even compared to other industries like manufacturing. Um, I worked with yeah. many people who, you know, were on, um, who use SNAP benefits, for example, to buy their own groceries, right? Um, who mm-hmm. who um, had Medicaid benefits, things like that, who couldn't afford their own food, right? So we, we have a class of people who are tasked with selling basic goods, and they themse- that they themselves cannot afford. So I would say, on the one hand, yes, it is about pay and compensation. Um, on the other hand, uh, that's not all. Um, as the incident that I just described, I think reveals pretty well, a lot of these jobs are very. Um, uh, they aren't. They aren't good jobs. They're not high-quality jobs. The work that's required. It's difficult. It's physically taxing. It's dangerous. It can be unsanitary. Um, long hours on your feet. You're treated poorly by customers, by management. Um, the work is rote and repetitive and, um, mm. right. And so the and, jobs need to be better and paid. Boring, they need to be ha- and boring, probably. And extremely boring, right? Um, and so the fact that we have relegated a class of people to this very, very important and frankly highly skilled work, um, of keeping the rest of us fed and that we've done that. By at the same time that we pay them so low and sort of put them in these, um, right. in these, the kind of situation that I described, uh, you know, I think what's required is, is actually, as I described in the article that I wrote for the Going for Broke anthology, you know, what's really required is kind of a wholesale reevaluation of the kinds of work, uh, the kinds of labor that we really, that is essential to our system. I mean, I think one of the things this pandemic revealed is what kinds of jobs are really essential, which ones really matter and you know who can frankly stay home and uh, and well, nobody notices <laughs> if they show up to work mm-hmm. or not right whereas if my colleagues and I had stayed home from our jobs we've got a serious problem right others sure. people work in factories manufacturing you know from the post office to the warehouse to healthcare right mm. it really gave us yeah
1: also necessary aren't they
4: necessary work uh, what's necessary you, what's essential yeah, yeah.
1: You also write about uh, class differences, even in the store. Uh, When somebody comes in, it's obvious that they're from, that they're maybe not working, working class. Do you define working class like the type of jobs, or is it the education that people have? Or um, do you try to to define that uh, in your, well, in your writings for the book uh, Going for Broke?
4: Yeah, I think, yeah, so the Going for Broke Anthology is, it, it's from, uh, it's, a, it's a book published by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, uh, a group which I'm affiliated with, with, with which I'm affiliated, it's a non-profit, been around since about 2012, and it was founded by the great
0: mm-hmm.
4: Barbara Ehrenreich, as you may, as you may know. Um,
1: oh, it, oh, no kidding, Yeah, yeah. yeah That's so yeah. interesting, I mean, her book, I loved her book, yeah.
4: Um, and so what, what was EHR- it called?
1: Nickel and nickel and nickel dime, and dime.
4: Right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And many, yeah, many other yeah. titles, obviously. Yeah. But what EHRP does is it funds journalism that are journalism by writers reporting on economic injustice. And many of the writers doing those reports are from working class backgrounds. So they're people who've struggled economically themselves, you know. The anthology has articles about you know, eviction, homelessness, you know, being denied medical care, uh, huh. struggling with unemployment, you know, addiction, you know, the whole the whole range. Um, so what we mm. try to do is it's reporting very much kind of in the trenches, kind of journalism that's really kind of hard to find in a lot of mainstream publications. That you know, sure
1: it is. Yeah, any
4: journalists. In fact, I think one study showed almost half of journalists in mainstream outlets are like from elite backgrounds. So um, this is really uh, an attempt to uh, provide a bit more balance, right, to the stories that are being told, um, and yeah. to keep to keep working class writers and working class stories in the national conversation. And so, yeah. Going for broke is an anthology that collects some of this work, um, and that's that's a way to answer your question. I think most of us are working class, right? I mean, I go with the traditional. Mm-hmm. If you have to work for a living. <laughs> Right? Um, If you don't own the means of production, is one way of putting it, um, you are most likely working class. I mean, obviously, there's differences that we could talk about within that group, um, but somebody who is a teacher or a nurse or a social worker is not the same as somebody who checks groceries. I wouldn't want to put all those, I wouldn't want to deny the differences there in terms of autonomy on the job and pay and things like that. But, um, you know, most of us, I think, that work for a living on um, some way or another fall into that category and those are the kinds of stories that we often miss in the mainstream media which is simply written by people oh. who have more privilege and more money and more um, <laughs> a different perspective, and, and right? really
1: wouldn't wouldn't know the subject right
4: exactly, uh, yeah. and
1: probably don't look around them when they go into a store and you know look at the person behind the register and even think about that person as being a real person I don't know I think yes. You know, often uh, people in the upper classes are completely dismissive. Uh, you also uh, talk about uh, loss, talk about loss. You know, lost jobs, lost homes, uh, and then you put it uh, lost the narrative thread of their lives. Why the emphasis on loss? Is it just as part of being in the working class that you experiencing those things?
4: I mean, I just think when you don't have enough, when your every waking moment is organized around meeting your basic needs, making sure you can pay mm-hmm. rent, making sure you have a roof over your head, and making sure you can afford to eat, making sure your kids have have enough to eat, making sure you can take care of your family. Um, you know, I do think what's lost there is we have a whole bunch of people, a whole class of people that that don't have time for anything else, right? They can't contribute. Mm. Like, there's no... You know, a lack of formal education is often assumed as the co- like people work at the grocery store because they didn't go to college, right? And while that's mm. it's true that the person who took you out at the grocery store probably does not have a college degree, the, that that lack of a degree is not the reason, right? Or it does not justify uh, her poor pay or poor working conditions, right? And in fact, mm-hmm. you know, her her working class status is one of the reasons she probably doesn't have a college degree. College is not cheap, as I'm sure you know. Uh, People are afraid of getting this debt, right? So I would actually say the law Right, comes at the level of a society that doesn't invest in most people and in fact relegates them to these to these rote jobs, to these to these lives that, you know, where they can have so much Mm -hmm. more to offer. They're just as intelligent as anybody else. They have just as much to offer. They're just as inventive, just as innovative, just as compassionate. Um, and we've sort of created a society where we assume people end up in the place where they deserve and where their merit Mm leads and you know, right, I, yeah. I just find that deeply offensive and something that we really need to rethink. And if the pandemic didn't kind of open our eyes to that, then I don't know what, what would.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you also co-founded something called the Debt Collective. Is uh, Are they mostly like college debts or or do you deal with just the fact that most working people probably are in debt and, and can't really afford. There was just one recent study, you know, two-thirds of Americans couldn't afford a $400 uh, emergency. I mean, people live so close to the edge in this country and they're paid so poorly. Um, what was the What is the Debt Collective and what does it do?
4: Thanks for asking. Yeah, so uh, the Debt Collective was an organization that I co-founded a few years ago and... Um, it's intended as a place where people who are in debt, all kinds of debt, uh, medical debt, I credit see. card debt, student debt, right, could come together and organize for debt relief, right, in the short term, but also more longer term view for the provision of public goods uh, so that we won't have to take on debt to survive, right? So, for example, the debt collector, huh. we, we started... Uh, one of our first campaigns was with student debt. We organized with borrowers who had attended uh, scammy for-profit college. Um, this was back in 2015. So we were arguing with them that collective organizers and borrowers went to the federal government, who is the is the creditor, right, in the case of student debt, demanding that that debt be canceled. At the same time, we said the solution to this problem is free public higher education, right, so that working-class people can have an option to go to college without taking on debt, where tuition will be free, publicly mm. subsidized, right? And so it's the kind of two steps. This debt is odious, it should never have been issued, it should be canceled. At the same time, we need public goods to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else. So the debt collective, we've had, we
0: yep.
4: have, have had some great success in that area. Um, billions of dollars in for-profit college debt has been canceled thanks to the work of those borrowers and organizers. Obviously, we have a long way to go. Um, but uh, the debt collect is really based on the idea that our common economic condition is something that we should organize around.
1: Mm. And that education itself is good for democracy and our society, and right. not to have people educated uh, is a loss for uh, for the community, you know, and the nation. I would say. Right. We Do you all ever try to it. link? with that? We all suffer for it, you know. Uh, and people who go to college and accumulate a huge debt and then come out and they're from, you know, a lower middle class background, they don't have any contacts to, you know, get an excellent job. I I spent a lot of years working in a college. I was a career counselor and I know uh, from that elite colleges have all sorts of contacts for students to get jobs but that isn't true for, for poor people, you know, or people who don't go to these elite colleges. Um, so I could go on and on about that, but that'll
0: (laughs) I have a whole bunch more
1: questions. So, all right.
0: Um,
1: do you ever connect this uh, to our wars abroad? There's just no ending of U S wars abroad. And uh, we had, um, we took a look uh, several months ago at how many military bases there were around the globe. There's 800 military bases. And wow. the billions and billions of dollars spent on these bases. And I think there's 45 different uh, countries in the world. Uh, many of them have tons. Like Italy is filled with military bases. And Spain has them. And places that you wouldn't even think you know uh, do you ever connect this lack of uh, wages and and the high debt of workers to the fact that half of all our money is sent abroad and it's sent abroad in bombs
4: yes.
1: it benefits nobody do, you, do is that part of the what you you look absolutely. at or not
4: i think that's absolutely legitimate huh. i mean what's the famous uh, lyric uh, money for war can't be the poor <laughs> i mean what's amazing to <laughs> me is that Um, we have endless resources that can be conjured up seemingly out of thin air for any military campaign that you name, right? Mm. Um, And yet, when it comes to take universal health care, right, something that would, you know, tens of thousands of people die every year because they don't have health care, right? And yet we can't scrounge up the money to keep, people from dying and to make sure people can have health care, take care of their families, go see a doctor. I mean, that's just one example of the kind of, sure. Uh, we're expected to just live in a society that has no problem coming up with resources for military campaigns. Yeah. And yet there's never any resources for ordinary folk. And that, I mean, people are pissed off about that. And I think uh, they have a right. To yeah. Be.
1: Yeah. We have um, a, a section of, uh, the Middle East, Gaza, we have 2 million people that are, are hungry. There's no food there. And uh, all Congress talks about is sending another 14 billion, but it's not in food aid. It's more bombs. Bomb Gaza. So not only is our country spending billions and billions abroad, I mean, a, a huge amount of money abroad but they're funding the wrong things when people are starving you don't buy bombs to to massacre them more i mean what we do with the money abroad is obscene in a war crime and i think it will uh, be judged to be a genocide that uh, the u.s Certainly, is funding absolutely. in gaza
4: absolutely yeah. gruesome i couldn't agree more free palestine
1: you uh, talk about there being, you call a bright line that stands between workers uh, and customers, uh, especially privileged customers. Is is it an obvious sense that you get uh, as you're working on the line or uh, checking people's groceries? Are people, do they treat you differently and can you tell
4: it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, i will i'll will just reference the the my experience during the pandemic was a moment when I think people's um real selves kind of came out. I mean, I think other you know there's always there's usually uh, some measure of politeness, people behaving in ways they think they should. You know there's a script between a service worker and a customer. in a lot of ways the the pandemic and the kind of panic that people felt and the fear really they really revealed themselves a lot of times during that moment. And I will say many customers were, were lovely coming in to get their groceries, mm. thanking us, right, just being very – they were aware, right, of, of what they regarded as a sacrifice that we were making on their behalf, and they were grateful. But a, a you know, sizable um, number of customers were rude. They could hardly uh. disguise, could hardly disguise their sort of disgust with having to be physically near us um they, oh, isn't they, that amazing I, I, I describe a scene in in the article um in the going for Broke anthology about a customer that I, I was checking him out and a an elderly woman was bagging his groceries and he yelled at her and said stop touching my groceries right and we all knew you know he was afraid of like her contaminating his food as she was serving him right he had to come through a check stand so he had to be face to face with me but she was like one person too much, right um and so mm. he, he sort of very publicly and loudly you know ordered her to get away from his from his groceries, and you know, as I describe in the piece, what's really funny about that is that he doesn't seem to realize or maybe he does and doesn't care that those groceries have already been touched by many people before they get to his grocery cart, right? People come into sure. the store at night and unload trucks and put the, the stuff doesn't just appear magically on the shelf, right? Many people are involved right. in unloading the trucks, unboxing the, the, the goods, putting them on the shelf. Right. And so mm. there's already been there. The, it's part of the theme. One of the themes that, you know, that I you know sort of thought about as i worked there is the degree to which people are just oblivious that w- what the kind of the kind of work that's required that goes into making sure you mm. can buy that kind of soup right um and i think so yep. again the pandemic people people's prejudices were sort of revealed in that moment
1: really huh there's been some surveys that show well one was 87 another was 92 a huge amount of Americans think we should tax the rich more. Um, and yeah. I'm wondering, do you think that that is, you know, a a just and uh, a worthwhile solution? Are, are rich people just not paying their taxes?
4: Oh, they are certainly not. I just read a study, I think a day or two ago, wealth inequality within generations and across age groups is at its peak since the world war Two, right in some ways it's never been worse in terms of wealth inequality right now than it is right now yeah um yeah, and so one yeah. of the reasons is that people are allowed to make this kind of money are allowed to acquire this these obscene levels of wealth on the other hand it's not being taken from them uh via taxation we should certainly be doing that and, uh, and you're right this is another example of you know of, like you just said, majorities support this. And yet our elected officials, Mm. you don't ever hear them talk about it. Um, There's just something undemocratic. Undemocratic about the broken system that you referenced at the beginning.
1: It is broken, and uh, it isn't democratic at all. I mean, one could argue that both uh, political parties are owned by the very rich, and I think you could make a very good argument, uh, even taking a look at the money that they get to run for office, uh, the very rich... um, contribute tremendous amounts so that they can keep their tax uh, load you know very low um, so I, I guess this slips into the next question that I wanted to ask we don't have very much time either but uh, do you think teaching people about the class system the divisions the unfairness of it is uh, one way to overcome the mistreatment of workers in the in the u.s
4: I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a former educator. I would never deny the importance and value of education. And, but what I would say is what we really need is institutions, working-class institutions that, we, that organize in favor of working-class interests, like unions, right? Hmm. Um, hmm. Right. And, I mean, look, rich people are very organized. They have <laughs> their own foundations and groups. Send, you know, whatever you World Trade Organization, all the way up to the World Trade Organization and look at what's going on in the Ivy League. not that I care that much about what goes on at Harvard. But in terms of the, you know, shutting down free speech, you know, on campus, I mean, rich people who are incredibly organized in their own interest and making sure that what they want to happen happens. And Mm. I think working class folks you know, very few of us are in unions, very few of us are involved in groups where we can exercise authority. And education certainly mm. part of that. I mean, the movements should have political education components, but it really has to be about bringing people together along uh, in, who share a condition. Class. Yeah. And class, figuring out. Class lines, right. And building some power right. that way.
1: Well, I have to tell you a very short story now, even though we're out of time, but it's it's a good story. I, I was in Sweden uh, a while ago, and uh, the restaurants there are so expensive. I'd say twice as much as we pay here for a nice meal. And so I went out to to dinner once, and I, I got talking to the waiter, and then I finally asked him, uh, "Who comes into the restaurants?" He, you know the prices these are these prices are amazing compared to back home he said yeah they're amazing because um i get paid and i have a family and i have a house and my waiter pay can get me those things he said you know in your country a waiters treated like garbage and gets nothing he said here everybody uh gets equal pay and everybody can have you know a family and a house even a waiter waiting in a restaurant gets gets his share, so I was so struck by that, and that was uh, a number of years ago. I still am impressed by that. the The idea that that was even possible, that uh, workers could get fair salaries, but so anyway. I
4: wonder
1: if that, that server is in a union. <laughs> that would that would explain a well, lot. Right? I that would explain a lot, and I mean. The, the Sweden went through a revolution in the 1920s, and they overthrew uh, the the capitalists running things. And the uh, same is true of uh, Denmark and uh, Norway. Yeah. You know, they had a workers' movement, uh, had their own publications, uh, and they they won. They beat the oligarchs, and so it's possible here. You know, we've seen it there. Were In the rest of the world so and and thank you so much i'm i'm sorry that you went through that but you know we get to look at the the lessons that uh, you learned and they're really important lessons about how how this country functions so thank you so much
4: you're welcome thanks for having me
1: radio can be heard Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. on WIOF 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York, and Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network PRN.fm. Past shows can be heard on classwars.org. Please like our Facebook page, read our Class Wars blog for commentary on today's interview. We'll be here next week at the same time to help you become part of the resistance.